Hey, welcome to the Doc Porter Podcast. I'm Dave McVeigh, co-writer, along with my buddy Jim Ballone. Uh, thanks for choosing us. Every week we'll be dropping a new chapter, maybe even two, of our 2021 novel, The Doc Porter, which is set on Mackinac Island, Michigan, read by me. When we published the book in 2021, we really had no idea it would take off. It ended up winning a Michigan Notable Book Award and was an Amazon bestseller for like at least a few minutes. Uh, it seemed to have struck a chord, and it's been pretty amazing to see the whole thing take off. So why are we giving the book away on a podcast when we can also sell it on Audible, which we are selling it on Audible? That's actually a pretty good question. Um, in fact, now that you mention it, let's just forget this whole thing. I'm kidding. We're giving it away because we are building up to something really special. Um, coming in August 2023, we're releasing the prequel to The Doc Porter called Somewhere in Crime. In Somewhere in Crime, we go back even further to the summer of 1979. Mackinac Island was the backdrop for a Hollywood movie called Somewhere in Time, starring Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour. The hero of the Doc Porter, Jack, was 11 that summer, and he was the paperboy. He ends up trying to solve a cold case murder while bumbling in and out of the Somewhere in Time production. So anyway, enjoy the Doc Porter and get ready for Somewhere in Crime, which is coming in August of 2023 to Amazon and the Mackinac Island Bookstore, and hopefully other outlets, TBD. Thanks again for listening. Chapter 10, The Crazy Dream, mid-August, 1989. The next week was something out of a ridiculous rom-com I would never, ever pay to see. After years of gleefully mocking Somewhere in Time, I found myself starring in a junior varsity sequel of that very same movie. Only this time it had no time travel, period clothes, or a bad penny. I presented Aaron with the restored Schwinn Hollywood. We rode, exploring every square inch of the island. Her riding skills were impressive for a Dublin city girl and even with the occasional death wobble, she looked fantastic on the bike. I couldn't help to think my mom would be happy to see her old rig back in action, even if she had given it up for the lazy comfort of gears. Mom was right. I was a purist. The island is small, and it didn't take long for me to rediscover all the secret hiding places I loved as a kid, snapping hundreds of pictures along the way. My interest in the art of photography had always felt like a dirty secret, packed away in a weird, artsy Pandora's box along with the Smiths, Warhol, and Truman Capote. Aaron had pried open the lid. For the first time, I strapped on the leather camera case with pride. We scrambled up a hidden chunk of limestone above the island shore road past the boardwalk and shared a 40-ounce bottle of Mickey's malt liquor. Aaron had complained about the weakest piss nature of Stroh's beer, a staple of any well-rounded Michigan diet, so I found another option. We sat and looked out at the water as waves broke on the beach in uneven white lines. I noticed she'd become reticent. Is everything okay? I asked. I want to explain something. It's been on my mind. She paused to make sure I was paying attention. You once mock me a bit. He said Gordon was a safe choice. He is. She nodded. But it was the look of a patient teacher, not a lover. My father is one of the most charming, interesting men I've ever known. 
When he walks into a room, everybody turns their head. And it's not just because he's my father that I say this. Everyone who knows him agrees. He makes people feel like they're the only person on earth. The man literally vibrates with life. She took a sip, then set the bottle down, carefully balancing it on an outcropping of rock. He's also a liar, a thief, and of two years and six months ago, a convicted felon. He destroyed our family for the most stupid, unforgivable reasons. She scooted closer to me, looking me straight in the eye. Houses that are safe don't get washed away during hurricanes, Jack. Safe cars have seat belts and airbags, and people pay extra for it. Only when describing people does the word safe become an insult. I'm not with Gordon, okay? I'm here, with you, and I like you very, very much. I'm also not expecting safe, yet. But unless you drive four hours to Clover Hill Prison to spend 45 minutes with your interesting, charming father, who is now dressed in an orange jumpsuit, you can't begin to know how wonderful safe can sound. Her eyes didn't leave mine. I felt foolish and exposed, schooled even. I loved it. The best lessons are often taught in the most unusual places. This one took place on a limestone rock, partially obscured by cedar trees a few miles past the boardwalk. She picked up the Mickey's bottle and poured a little out on the rock in front of her, gangster style, smiling as she watched the beer foam and spread out. Let's go see her grandfather, she said. We spent some quiet time at Gramps Headstone at St. Anne's Cemetery, located deep in the interior of the island. I placed his Michigan cap on the rock along with some lilacs we picked along the way, tied together with some stray luggage tags I found stuck to the base of my basket. It was a crude arrangement, but wound tight with love. That night, we ended up on a blanket on a wooden stockade called Fort Holmes, the island's highest point. The harbor stretched out below us, the reflections from the yacht docks and bobbing buoys shimmering across the dark, calm waters in oranges and blues. Directly across the water was Round Island, illuminated in a wash of moonlight. We were pleasantly buzzed off cheap red wine. We had passed it back and forth, and now we were enjoying the warm, red glow of Bargain Bin Merlot. Aaron leaned back and looked to the sky, letting out a slow sigh. The Milky Way looked close enough to touch. My God, the stars sure shine bright when you get away from town. That's exactly why I wanted to bring you here, she scoffed. Right, to see the stars. And I'm sure you've never used that line before. Hey girl, want to see the stars? I know a spot, she smacked me playfully. I never claimed it was an original line, but it's never not been true, I countered. She stretched out on the blanket and propped her head on her elbow. It's August. What's next for you, Jack McGuinn? I paused, not sure how much I wanted to share. Depends on some things. Things like? Just some things I have pending. I realized how ridiculous it sounded. Pending. I was thinking about Gordon, about the bet. I might have been there with Aaron, but Gordon still had me by the tenders. Riding 21 bags was physically impossible, and deep down, I knew it. But it wasn't a situation I wanted to share with her, particularly at that moment. She settled back, returning her eyes to the stars. Don't take this the wrong way, but you don't strike me as a fella that has things pending. 
I had a feeling you'd say that. It's a dumb word, pending. Now it was my turn to sit up straight. I began babbling like a man on truth serum. The thought of wearing a jacket and tie chained by my ankle to a desk is like death. Chained to a desk? What you going on about? You don't have to sell cars, Jack. You can be whatever you want. Take pictures for a living. I continued on my train of thought. What if I can't ride 21? What if I am a tip man? All charm and no balance. She looked at me, perplexed. You need to get out of the sun. Your brain's turning into oatmeal. Forget about it, Aaron. Let's talk about you. What are you going to do after the summer? Because I don't want this to end. You don't want what to end? This. Us. I don't know. All of it. This summer. My long-gone cottage. The cello. The baggage. These... I indicated her tan, exposed knee. These jeans with the perfectly ripped holes in the knees. Her Irish eyes smiled back, amused and a little devious. Why, you poor little boy. I think you're in love. She broke out laughing and took my head with both hands, pulling me close for a deep kiss. I felt a combination of invigoration and total humiliation. It was fantastic. Shit, it's 11 o'clock. Get up. Wow, Mr. Romantic. But she was laughing when she said it. You had your tumble, now it's time to split. I see how you are. We were covered by a blanket and bathed in moonlight. Our Fort Holmes date had evolved into something more sensual and energetic. I had inadvertently rolled over on a sharp pine cone which jammed hard into my right butt cheek. I awoke with a jolt of pain and realized we were running late. I hopped up and took her hand. I have a surprise for you. Let's go. We raced our bikes down the miles-long slope that led from Fort Holmes to Main Street. I'd taken this madcap late-night cruise since I was eight years old, but Erin was having some difficulty keeping up. I'm scared. It's too dark, she shrieked, her voice muffled by the rush of the wind. The road's up there, I shouted, pointing to the sky. She caught up, following my lead, and slowly looked skyward, terrified but willing. Above, the starlit canopy between the tall pines on either side of the road created a perfect celestial pathway, easy to follow if you had the guts. To island types, it was all second nature. Riding a bike on a darkened road demanded you simply look up, even after a bottle of red wine. Trust the stars, I yelled. Trust the stars? What the fuck does that even mean? There's that word again, I yelled back. It means the stars. Trust them! Her eyes adjusted, then widened with wonder. The pathway of stars revealed itself above her. As the wind blasted through my eardrums, I could barely hear her repeating it to herself, like a mantra. Trust the stars. Trust the stars. Trust the stars. Once Aaron got the hang of inverse cosmic navigation, she let loose. We both whooped like kids, and the route of stars led us into town. We whipped past the Grand Hotel. Aaron screamed out, Hello, cello! I hope you're safe, love! Down the final decline, with the dog leg left we went, and ended up gliding down Main Street with our feet up on the frames of our bikes. We rolled up to Horn's Bar, winded and exhilarated. Aaron's hair was a wild, tangled, dark mess, and her eyes glistened with tears of wind and speed. We coasted to a stop in front of the bar. Ah, home sweet home, I said. You trust me now? You? 
or the stars? She asked. Me, I said. The verdict's still out, she responded. But you are full of surprises, Mr. McGuinn. A highway of stars? That's worth an entry in the diary. I'll take it, I said. I removed a red bandana out of my back pocket. Now, trust me a little more. She shot me a suspicious look. Okay, I think I've seen this movie, and it doesn't end well for the girl. She shrugged. But hell, you got me to race down a hill at night, half schnockered, without ever looking up at the road. So sure, I'm game. She stood up, ramrod straight, as I approached. I'm ready, executioner. I only wish I was a smoker, so I could have one last cigarette before I die. I tied the bandana tightly around her head, covering her eyes, and took her hand. Walk slow. I'll guide you. So we're clear. You're telling me I'm about to walk into Horn's Bar blindfolded. That is precisely what I'm telling you. I opened the creaky door and walked inside, guiding her with a hand around her waist. Two hundred or so rowdy islanders packed tightly on the dance floor, all quieted themselves as we entered. Everything was on a ferryboat-like schedule. One step up, I said, as I led Aaron to the stage. Her hands reached out helplessly. Victor Buckshot Rapaski, the singer and guitar player, gently took her hand. Bucktooth smiled broadly, toothy, like a pirate, loving the moment. There we go, sweetie. Careful now. I joined her on the small stage and turned her towards the crowd and slid off her blindfold. She squinted and took in the scene as the crowd murmured in anticipation. AJ approached the stage and handed her a bow. My lady, your bow he said in his best awful Shakespearean dialect, then backed away like a subservient courtier. Uh, this isn't my bow, she said, staring at it blankly. It is tonight, I said. Aaron, this is Buckshot, and this is his band, the Buckshot Band. Tonight, you're playing with them. Buckshot was the leader of the sloppiest, most crowd-pleasing four-piece jam band on the island. They could cover anything, from the Beatles to folk to R.E.M., Buckshot grinned, a twinkle in his eye. Nice to meet you, Aaron. I got something for you. He reached behind the battered drum set and produced a fiddle case. He opened it up and presented it like a waiter serving up fine dining. I've been scouting for a fiddle player for years. We know all the Irish standards. She removed the fiddle from the case and looked at me. Her eyes lit up. Her mouth opened in a moment of uninhibited joy. She looked out at the revved up crowd hooting and hollering now for music. The crazy dream, she said. I'll never forget the look of wonder on her face. It may have been the highlight of my life. Horn's Bar was utterly out of control that night. Summer was racing towards autumn, and there was no time to waste. The cold witch was on her way down from parts north and the energy of the island nights ramped up night by night. By mid-August, the merriment was audible on the streets long after closing time. By Labor Day, it was chaos. The establishment was divided between the stage and bar section, but when things got volcanic, the division magically vanished and horns was awash in that unique thumping vibration that can only come from good live music and free-flowing drinks. Tonight, the worn wood floor was literally bouncing, an unearthly 11 on some rock and roll Richter scale. Aaron found her place in the universe, and we were all witnesses. It was her night, and damned if she was going to let it go to waste. I arranged it, 
tossing a few hammies to the band earlier in the week. They'd learned a few standard Irish tunes like Whiskey in the Jar and the Irish Rover, but it was clear the moment she hit the first note she needed no help. She knew every song in the band's set list and exactly how to make the music sound better with her fiddle. It was as if the only thing Buckshot had been missing to lead the greatest bar band in the known universe was a beautiful, talented fiddle player. She moved with the chord changes, flinging her wild hair, slamming her Doc Martin boots to the beat, connecting with the boys in that magical, unspoken way only real musicians understand. She sweated and laughed, her wild, flashing blue eyes focused and charged. The crowd hooted and screamed, energized and insane, even for horns in the late 80s, which was a very high standard indeed. At one point, while the dance floor bounced, shaking the foundations, AJ hopped up on stage and broke out in an impromptu river dance simulation. Arms crossed, legs flailing, sweat flying off his jet black hair like a wet rag. It was ridiculous, and the crowd loved it. While Aaron was giving Charlie Daniels a run for his money, AJ's spastic dance moves channeled something closer to Jerry Lewis. I wandered over to the bar to grab a round. As I reached for my wallet, I heard a voice. I got Jack's drink, whatever it is. I looked up to see Gordon. The man in black sat silently next to him, looking bored and entirely sober. She sounds amazing, Gordon called out over the music. Never knew she could play like that. He was calm, and it was vaguely disturbing. He had to know Aaron and I had been spending time together, although I never asked her for any specific breakup details, figuring that was her business. There's probably a ton of things you don't know about her, I shot back over the din of the crowd. Having a good night tonight, he asked, looking me over. If you're buying, I am. Make them all double, Snake. Snake. The skinny, tattooed bartender smiled onto the scam. The good stuff, right, Jack? He called back. Yep. Anyone named Glenn, I said. I know a dude named Glenn. Last name Fittick. That's the guy, I called back. Gordon remained calm and took a sip of his drink. He was looking straight ahead, and I could see him in the mirror behind the bar. His face was weirdly distorted by the old warped glass. I have your cubicle all picked out, Jack. The staff of the luggage team will be wearing matching cornflower blue jackets and Kelly green pants. It's all very tasteful. Sounds cute, I replied. What size do you wear? Without taking his eyes off me, he produced a ballpoint pen from the pocket of his red Patagonia jacket and clicked it, then grabbing a napkin from the bar. He sized me up like a tailor. Hmm, let's start with the jacket. 42 regular, I'm guessing. You're going to have to supply your own dress shoes, though. Plain black is fine. You okay with that? You're going to lose, I shot back. I honestly had every intention of grabbing my drinks from Snake and resuming the critical business of having the night of my life. But of course, I couldn't stop myself. I wheeled around to him, inches away now. You stole the only thing that ever mattered to my family. Stole? Jack, your dad sold it to us. He leaned in closer to be heard over the music. Besides, you're as much to blame for losing Wildcliff as anyone, and you know it. If you hadn't gone all Sir Galahad with Trina at the Wibho, we never would have even considered Wildcliff. We were looking for property, period. That's what we do. He pointed a finger at me. Maybe if you'd join your old man at the dealership, you'd have held on to the place. 
Maybe you'd be entertaining Aaron on the front porch instead of rolling around in the barn with all the horse shit. He looked towards the stage. You know what? Here's a fun idea. Later, you can request a song. But what song? He looked up as if hunting for the right idea. Oh, I know. How about If I Were a Rich Man? I heard she can fiddle the hell out of that one. The man in black turned away, choking back a laugh. I could feel my ears getting hot. Snake, I gestured to the drinks. Put it all on my tab instead. Gordon spun his bar stool to face me. Don't you think I would rather do your job? Ride around the island all day on a bike full of luggage, hustling tips? But I can't. I have responsibilities. You couldn't ride luggage if you wanted to, Gordo. You have no balance. You never did. Even when we were kids, you were a wobbly piece of shit. He smiled back, unfazed. I think you're the one with no balance, Jack. Check your bank account. See if I'm right. I pointed to the stage. I'd like to stay here and chit-chat, but I'm going to go kiss your ex-girlfriend in front of you and everyone in this entire bar. I took the drinks from Snake and headed off. I didn't want him to see it, but he'd gotten to me. Moments later, I hopped up on the stage with two drinks. Aaron was finishing a song, and the crowd was going mad. She set the fiddle on a music stand, accepted the cocktail, and to rousing cheers, took a deep sip. I grabbed her by the waist and pulled her close, planting a deep kiss for the whole island to see. Over her shoulder, I stole a furtive glance towards Gordon's bar stool. The son of a bitch was gone. Ah, well, it was still a kiss for the ages. Spangler strode over to the stage. I handed him a tambourine as the band broke into a fiddle-fueled Beatles cover. He looked at it like it was a dinosaur bone. You shake it, I called down. Spangler did, but he didn't look too happy about it. What's wrong with you? This is a party. I got a story, Jack, he called over the music. That's great. You're on your way, man. What is it? You uncover a cocktail waitress witch coven at Arch Rock? You're on inmate strike? Next stop, the Washington Post, Spangler Woodstein. I can feel it. No, Jack, this is quite bad. I stopped short. Quite bad. That sounds worse than just bad. It is. I hopped off the stage and pulled him away from the blaring speakers. What's this about? I need to show you something. I'll never know how Spangler got his hands on the plans and the sick reality of the moment I forgot to ask. The resulting string of events it set off made it all a minor footnote, but there was no denying this was an impressive scoop. The boys and I had left the party at Horns and were staring down wordlessly at Spangler's handiwork. Spread out on the flower-patterned bedspread of my crappy apartment were the plans and blueprints that indicated the end of Mackinac Island as we all knew it. I finally broke the silence. Casinos. Yep, Spangler replied. Pure bargain basement. It's that guy in black we always see with Gordon. His name is Carter Egan, and he's been working with the Whitaker family behind the scenes for the last year. He buys property through a company called Blue Water LLC. Wherever he goes, the town instantly turns into a total cesspool, although financially speaking, a wildly successful cesspool. Foster inspected the plans. Where do these come from? Spangler looked away. I can't say. I'm, you know. You're a journalist, Foster said. Spangler smiled grimly, appreciating the compliment, if not the circumstances. 
For the next few minutes, we inspected the sketched renderings of the island like dumb monkeys. It was a weird parody of the island we loved, completely reimagined. Vast plots of land behind the bluff were lined with massive, modern hotels and casinos. Hand-sketched tourists were entering and leaving a multitude of new establishments. It was tacky and disgusting. Spangler finally spoke up. The guy has got a interest in a casino chain called Drunky Pete's and a club he calls Cheaters. And you know that chain of strip bars called Nude World? Smitty perked up. Hell yeah, of course. Place is great. There's one in Houghton and uh, let's see Marquette. I think there might be one in... I cut him off. This is a disaster. How did it happen? 80% of the island was a state park, protected from situations like this. But something had gone horribly wrong. Spangler scanned his notes. It's complicated. Gordon and Carter Egan took advantage of a loophole. The holding company has about $300 million they're willing to invest in the island. The only way you can develop state land is if it falls under recreation. It's very vague. A.J. piped in. Some people golf for recreation. Some people hit the roulette table. Exactly. Because the state economy is in a slump, they approved it without a vote. I guess they assumed it would be done right with the Whitakers involved. Island people and all. The state saw an adrenaline shot. They made the same deal on five different island lots. The first development is right here where we're standing. This is going to be the main casino. Wildcliff, I said, looking out the smudged window towards the house. Spangler nodded. It gets worse, Jack. They're actually calling it Wildcliff Casinos. My jaw tightened with rage. I thought about Gramps, how he had discovered a quaint but run-down old cottage for sale in the 1950s, bought it cheap, and rechristened the place Wildcliff. He had transformed the cottage through sheer force of will and personality into a gathering place for our family and our friends. The notion of a casino defiling that legacy, quite simply, made me want to puke. Smitty was oddly silent, staring at the renderings without expression. Finally, he turned to Spangler, speaking slowly. Are you saying that Mackinac Island, my ancestral home for hundreds of years, might become a casino town, complete with gambling and strip bars? Spangler exhaled. That's the way it looks. That is... Smitty looked up and away, scanning the barn ceiling for the appropriate words to express himself. Awesome, he looked at us. I mean, awful. Did I say awesome? No, awful. <laughs> yeah, this is bad. We should definitely do something. He nodded assertively, apparently satisfied with his plan. I sat on the bed, shaking my head, my butt crumpling the blueprints. Here I was, making small-time bets while Gordon was planning the biggest steal in island history. He played me like a... like a... Cello? Smitty piped in. I was going to say fiddle, but yeah, sure. He, he played me like a cello. 